1976, Arizona Republic investigative journalist Don Bowles went to an interview and ended up becoming a dark chapter in the history of Arizona and of journalism at large. He went to visit a source at the Hotel Clarendon after receiving an anonymous phone call. While he waited at the lobby, a call came for him at the front desk. The call reportedly only lasted a few minutes, enough time to say the interview was off. And when it was done, Bowles walked back out into the hot Arizona sun. It was early June, and while not as hot as the weather we're having this summer, the rays have never been kind. With the turn of a key, Bowles started his car, presumably to return to the newsroom at the state capitol. But after driving a few feet, the unspeakable occurred. Remote-controlled bombs consisting of six sticks of dynamite erupted underneath the driver's side of the car. The explosion was contained but destructive. The lower half of his body was blown off, the driver's door ripped open, and the reporter lay waiting for help. Don Bowles spent 11 days in St. Joseph's Hospital before passing away from his injuries. Limbs had to be amputated to fight off infection, but the damage was too severe. The story goes that he uttered three things while in the parking lot injured that day. John Adamson, M. Prize, and Mafia. A note left behind on his desk was another clue. Beside his typewriter was the message, John Adamson, lobby at 1115, Clarendon House, 4th and Clarendon. It felt as though the pieces of the puzzle were there. The death had to be related to the Mafia, whoever John Adamson was, and whatever Emprise was. But these stories are never that simple. Almost 50 years later, there's still a debate on why Don Bowles was murder and who is to blame. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com about Metro Phoenix and beyond. I'm producer Amanda Luberto, and today I'm joined by our in-house Don Bowles expert, Richard Rellis, to discuss why the case is still so interesting to people and new hypotheses that have arisen. Hi, Richard. Welcome to Valley 101. Thanks for having me, Amanda. I wanted to start by asking some big overarching questions so the audience can get to know you better if they haven't gotten a chance to listen to season one of our investigative podcast, Rediscovering. Season one, of course, was all about Don Bowles after you discovered some cassette tapes that hadn't been heard before. How long have you been covering the Bowles case and how did you get connected to those tapes? The Bowles case, I've been sort of adopting it as a mini beat for the last decade or so, just making sure every year we have a story coinciding with the anniversary to kind of keep the memory of the of the man alive. And so we were going through some storage space that the Republic had, a bunch of files somewhere, and like most people with storage space, after a while you think, why are we keeping all this stuff? So they went down and brought a bunch of it up, but they noticed some file cabinets were locked, like dead bolted shut. And so they hired a locksmith to open them, and our editor, Greg Burton, pretty soon realized these are Don Bowles files. And so he told me, get down there and see if there's a story to be had. I went down there, looked through, and I realized I was probably not the first reporter that's gone through these files, but then I saw a box of cassette tapes. And I thought, probably in the 
70s and 80s and 90s, when people were going through this box, we didn't do anything with audio. Now we have the ability to, so let's see what these cassettes contain on them. And there was a lot. Yeah, so these are cassettes Bulls had while he was doing his recording. He had just gotten a new tape recorder and figured out you could record calls. And they were a jumble. They weren't really marked. I thought things were mighty peculiar one time when I went down to the track and they gave me the big royal treatment. And uh, this was early in the game. And, uh, you know, I was just fiddling around, throwing $2 down on a dog just to see what happened, you know. And uh, got near the end and I was about $20 down or something. And I didn't care, you know. Uh, And uh, the public relations guy said, Hey, uh, I think I know who's going to win. I got a good shot at who's going to win the next race. Want to go in on a Quinella with me? Or a Perfecta or something. I can't remember. Yeah, and I said, okay. And this this dog came out of nowhere to win that race. (laughs) They weren't marked so that a reporter 40 years down the road could look for them. Um, They were marked for his use. So he knew what was in them. I didn't. I'm hitting play on the cassettes at random and just trying to catch up. Who is talking? What are they talking about? When are they talking? Like I'm in the middle of a conversation in which they're not stopping to catch me up. So we finally discovered a story in them that Bowles was upset that he was covering the racing industry and he believed they wiretapped his home phone. So this became a a mini obsession of his um, leading up to the day he died. And that's the story we told with that first podcast. What is it about this case that has kept your interest all these years? The Bulls case is such a rarity. Not just a, a journalist dying on the job, but being targeted for their work. You know, it happened in Las Vegas in recent years, a, a reporter there. And it happens in foreign countries all the time. It's rare in the United States for it to happen. And it was such a violent, overt attack. This wasn't someone being poisoned or, or stabbed or shot. This was a message, a loud explosion of a reporter in the middle of a city. And so trying to figure out why someone would do that, there's a lot of intrigue in this. And I think the rarity is what has kept it alive these years. So for people who might not know all of the ins and outs of the case, Who are some of the big players to keep in mind as you and I talk about the case throughout this episode? And what is their relationship to Bowles? Yeah, Bowles was supposed to meet a guy named John Harvey Adamson at the Clarendon Hotel. John Harvey Adamson didn't show, calls him up in the lobby and says, I can't make it. So Bowles walks back and the prosecutors and police will say that a man named Jimmy Robeson, Jimmy the Plumber Robeson, who was a plumber, but he also earned the nickname of the plumber, was sitting in the parking lot and with a remote control device detonated the bomb. Robeson and and Adamson were known quantities. They were people who, if you had a dirty deed to do, they would do it. If you needed someone beaten up, if you needed something exploded, these would be a couple guys you could hire to do the job. There was a man named Max Dunlap, who the police and prosecutors say hired Adamson and Robeson to do the job. And the official theory says Dunlap did so as a favor to his friend, a very rich man named Kemper Marley. 
uh, who was a liquor magnate, um, wanted to get involved in the racing industry, and was never officially implicated in the case, although police and prosecutors kept saying he's the reason, he's the motivation, but they could never show that he actually gave the order. It was more like maybe one day he said, who will rid me of this troublesome reporter? And Dunlap took that offer up. So was Dunlap convicted of the murder? Yes, Dunlap, Robeson, Adamson, all at various points were convicted of the murder. The justice system, and this case being so complicated, all of their convictions were at some point tossed. Some of them were retried. At the end of it, um, the only person who walked away acquitted by a jury was Jim Robeson. The other two men were convicted, and all of them have since passed on. Dunlap, even though he was acquitted by a jury, couldn't be released from custody because he was convicted of another violent crime, so he had to keep in prison to do more time. He was actually accused of trying to kill Adamson. The story gets very complicated, but yes, at some point they all faced charges, and at some point all were convicted of this. So someone was at one point behind bars for this murder. Yeah, all three did time for this murder. So since Rediscovering aired in 2019, there's been a few new podcasts that have come out covering the Bull story. It's not just an interest of us in Arizona or us working at the Arizona Republic specifically, but it's a national story. Like you were saying, it's so rare. These podcasts, The Patsy and The Syndicate, have come out since then. Um, Over the last few months, we have interviewed the creators of these podcasts. How did you first hear about them? They wanted me to know. I mean, there's the Twitter. I was getting press releases incessantly asking me, do you want to speak to the producers of these podcasts? And the answer ended up being, yes, I very much would like to speak to the producers of these podcasts. One of them I'm in, the, the syndicate. They interviewed me for it just to talk about what I was able to discover about Don Bowles, the person. When this podcast was out, um, they let me know it was out. And then for the Patsy, I kept getting press releases saying, the Patsy's out, the Patsy's out. Do you want to talk to the producers? I listened to them, and it made me very curious why they took the direction they did. And so, yes, I did have a lot of questions for the people who made these podcasts. Yeah, so that sort of leads me to my next question here. So part of what drew you to these interviews was the fact that there were new theories that popped up that both of these podcasts ran with. The official story goes, as we were talking, that the bombing was ordered by liquor executive named Kemper Marley. Bowles' reporting had cost Marley his nomination on the state racing commission, and it was sort of an act of revenge. Um, But these new podcasts suggest that he might not have been the person who made that call. What did these podcasts report that was new? What was their new alternative theory? Actually, their theories aren't new. They're just getting new uh, credibility, I guess. They're given credence. Bulls didn't die when his car exploded. He was on the ground, and he starts talking to people coming up, and he says a lot of things, you know, just some phrases. He asks them to call his wife. He, he tells them to let his wife know he loves her. He then says, uh, find John Adamson. John Adamson sent me here. He then starts talking about the mafia. He then starts talking about 
Emprise, which was a, a company that co-owned the dog racing tracks in town. He's saying things that he thinks led up to him being bombed. In a way, he was in no real position to let anyone know why he was bombed. He didn't, you know, the only tangible piece of evidence he had was John Adamson brought me here. Everything else was just conjecture, him thinking out loud. But people really seized on Emprise and the Mafia. And I think it's a much better story if the Mafia did it. I think one of the problems with the official story is it doesn't, it doesn't seem to merit it. Like, why would a guy be so upset about a volunteer post on a state racing commission? Why would that be enough to want him to blow someone up? So Mafia, that makes more sense. This is what the mob does. So the alternative theory is that people involved with the dog racing industry, people involved with the mafia and Emprise, there was a family called the Funks that owned the dog tracks, and Bowles was very deeply involved in looking at the Funks. The Funks were the people who, Bowles believed, wiretapped his home phone. So he didn't like them. They didn't like him. They sued each other. There was a lot of back and forth. So people are pointing towards the Funks. And there was an investigative reporter named Don Devereaux who worked for the Scottsdale Progress. And he has been peddling an alternative version of the Bulls story since 1978, 80, somewhere in there. But I think that, again, we had a lot of confidence in Don Devereaux's legitimacy as a reporter and his seriousness. And one thing that Adam said to me is like, he would not say something like this lightly. He fully understands the seriousness of saying something like that. And that's why in when he says it, he is careful to couch it in again, it's not a he's not saying it as a fact. He can't prove it. It is his educated guess based on his knowledge of the environment at the time and all the people involved and so on and so forth. So we're certainly cognizant of the fact that it's an explosive claim by one of the people that we interviewed, but we felt that, you know, the way it was presented was appropriate in the context. The theory is not new. It's just, I think, as time has gone on and there's fewer people around to maybe rebuke his story, it sounds really good. It's a much better story to think the mafia did it. So these podcasts really are running with the theory. When Devro told me about the Motorola Gold scam, you know, I reached out and I got confirmation from Kathy Colby that 48 hours before Don Bowles died, this is exactly the story that he told her he had and he was about to run with. I've I've gotten confirmation from a number of people with regards to Don Bowles working on a big story before he was killed, including another notable name in the media, Pat McMahon, who told me three days before Bowles was killed. Or he was bombed, I'm sorry. Uh, Irma Bombeck was a big name in local media back then, and Bowles and McMahon were close friends. And near the end of the roast, Pat McMahon approaches Don Bowles and says, Don, and excuse my language, I'm quoting word for word. Pat McMahon says, Don, when are you going to quit with these crazy goddamn investigations into the mafia before you get yourself hurt? And Don Bowles told him, there is one story I have left to write. And it's the one I'm working on now. And as soon as I'm done with this investigation, I'm choosing an entirely new line of work for my family's sake. One thing that really animated me to look into these podcasts is they blame the Arizona Republic. I kind of took it a little personally, the idea that the newspaper was complicit in covering it up. How do you explain how 
a newsroom back then or even today would not be interested in finding the truth of what happened to their friend and colleague? Well, that's a great question, Richard. And and certainly, I don't want to put you on the spot with it at all. But I mean, it's some of the information we found out about the history of the Arizona Republic as it played into the and fraud issues that were going on at the time in Phoenix from the late 60s, funks, the racetracks, etc. There were certain things that pointed us that, that said, look, you know, there were people at the Arizona Republic. And of course, this also goes into to the Tom Sanford death, right? And the circumstances surrounding his death, you know, that just looked a little not quite kosher to a certain extent from a newspaper, from a news organization's perspective that why did they always have a reporter sitting outside of a prosecutor's office prior to the trial, leaking information about the investigation constantly, creating a net narrative that folded right into what we consider the frame of Max Dunlop. I mean, you can go back into your archives and see a lot of the newspaper articles leading up to the trial that basically just go right down the path of, we found the guys that did it. This is why they did it. You got to wonder. So, I mean, yeah, it was the Arizona Republic who found the financial connection between Dunlap and Marley. Sure. And, and, yeah, but, 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 but what if that just was what happened? What if that just was not a framing of it, but people looking for the truth, discovering the truth and printing the truth? Well, to that point, why was Don Bowles told by his superiors in 1973 to stop investigating the connection between Emprise and the Mafia and the dog track syndicate in Arizona, forcing him to spend the next three years continuing to investigate um, on the side or in secret, giving his materials secretly to Tom Sanford, his editor, who was the only person who knew about it. They say that the Republic hid the truth, that an editor ordered the reporters to stop looking into it and stop looking into the truth. And then I think about our newsroom today. If something bad happened to one of our colleagues and the editor tried to tell us as a newsroom to stop looking into it, I don't think that would get very far. There's very little the editors could tell us to do (laughs) that we would all in one unit say, yeah, that not one of us would squeak out and tell another outlet, hey, you're really hiding the truth there. Um, They believe the Republic held back the truth. And part of it, again, this is the theory based on not much, is that we were holding back the truth because some editor was was being blackmailed by the mafia. So it all ties back into the the mafia theory. The mafia. The mafia had something on a top executive here at the Republic. And being that it was the... uh, mid-70s, this is the theory, just having an affair with a woman wouldn't have been strong enough in the mid-70s because that was way too common in the 70s. So this is Don Devereaux's theory. It must have been that they had something about an executive and a child. There must have been an editor that was a pedophile and they had proof of it. And that's why. And that's really the linchpin. And as ridiculous as it sounds as I'm saying it, one of the podcasts sort of dances around it. One of the podcasts actually out and out says it. The narrative you have in the podcast 
has Bowles being taken off the beat because without any evidence, there must have been a pedophilia scandal involving a top Republic executive? Yeah, so, I, what I want to... Devereaux I, talked about. Yeah, so I want to make a real clear distinction here. We made a real point, and this is something Adam and Chris and I spoke about frequently, that what's in the narration, meaning that what we claim is only stuff that we can substantiate through some sort of documentation or, or some you know really significant sourcing. And then the people that we interview obviously are free to say what their opinion is. And I think in that specific example that you're talking about, if I remember correctly, Don Devereaux says that he can't prove it, that it's his, it's his theory, you know, that it's his, basically his, I guess, educated guess. So I do want to be clear that we're not, we're not making the claim that that's a fact. And they let Don Devereaux give this theory out loud on a podcast. And that doesn't square with what I would believe as a Republic reporter, it just also doesn't pass common sense. Yeah, I'm curious if, I assume you've talked to Don Devereaux and all of the uh, reporting that you've done on this, how you jump from an affair to an affair with a child. Could it have been dirty money? Could it have been other things instead if it wasn't an affair with a woman that wasn't also pedophilia? Yeah, I've talked to Don Devereaux a handful of times. And actually after the last one in which the last conversation we had in which I was asking him some of these questions, he sent me a very nice letter just saying he appreciates the fact I'm sort of pushing back and hopes that we don't stop looking for the truth. I think the problem with these theories is you end with the conclusion. You begin with the notion that the official story is wrong. You begin with the notion that it's mafia and the funks that killed Don Bowles. Anything that, and so now every piece of evidence must fit that theory. And so that's what I think leads you to make this logical leap to say, well, the Republic must have held back the truth. The Republic must know the truth. Why would the Republic hold the truth back? If your aim is to try to answer that question, you're looking for an answer. Well, this is one answer that comes forward. The truth was, the Republic did not hold back any evidence to its readers or even the police. Looking back at the stories after the Bulls bombing in 76, the Republic reporters were all over it and actually brought some of the theories forward to the police. The Republic was the one that drew the connection because they interviewed, reporters interviewed Max Dunlap days after the bombing. And it was Max Dunlap who brought up his relationship with Kemper Marley without even the reporters prompting it. So the Republic actually helped knit together the truth, not conceal it. And I mean, we're still covering it. It's still being covered. It's still not being covered up. I mean, frankly, one of the when I started looking into the Bulls case again, you know, when I started started taking this on as a mini beat, I did think, boy, it'd be great if I could find something that blows a hole in the initial official narrative. What a great tale that would be. But I started from scratch, read the stories again, talked to as many people as I could, and that's what the conclusion was. I mentioned how complicated this case was. And after Dunlap and Robeson were convicted, Adamson testified against them and has struck a plea deal. But then Dunlap and Robeson's convictions were thrown out. Then the case went dormant for a while. Like, both men were not charged in the case anymore. But in the late 80s, early 90s, a grand jury convened and said, let's try it again. Let's see if we can figure out who killed Don Bowles. And they started from scratch. 
they invited Don Devereaux into the grand jury to provide testimony. So the idea that these theories weren't aired out, that they weren't looked at, they were presented to a grand jury. And Don Devereaux told me that when he walked out of the grand jury room, he felt great that he got to air his theories to people who had the power to do something about it. But months later, they conclude, no, there's no evidence of that. The evidence still points to John Adamson, Jimmy Robeson, and Max Dunlap. And so those were the men they charged again in the 90s. Adamson testified again against them. Robeson was found not guilty. Dunlap was convicted. But the idea that these theories were not looked into seriously is, it just doesn't, doesn't hold up. The justice system, the, a grand jury looked at these theories and decided they held no merit. A little over 30 years ago. Correct. I mean, you know, and again, they, you know, George Weiss, who was the attorney general investigator, said we started with, I mean, and, and George Weiss uh, was friends with Don Devereaux. They worked together on something called the Arizona Project, which was just a collection of investigative reporters from around the country who came to Phoenix to try to finish Don Bowles' work. So they knew each other. They were friends, colleagues, respected each other. And George Weiss asked Don Devereaux, come, let me hear, let me hear the evidence, show me the evidence. But all they got was theory, a story, and no hard evidence behind it. So another person we got to talk with, in addition to the creators of these newer podcasts, was Karen Graham. Karen Graham is the daughter of Max Dunlap. Had you talked with Karen before? I had talked with Karen Graham briefly on the phone because uh, she posted on the Republic's Facebook page about Don Bowles a letter she found that she had written to Don Bowles' daughter and sort of like a, a daughter to daughter. Both of us lost our dads, essentially, through this ordeal. And I knew where she stood on the murder. I didn't realize how deep it went. I mean, I'd like to think my father is not capable of a violent crime, too. So let's parse that out real quick. When we talked to her, what was her stance on all of it? Karen Graham thinks her father was the patsy. Her father was set up, that other people put her father up as the one to to take the fall for this. I'm telling you, I have his handwritten story his life story. And it tells, I mean, if you knew my dad, it's like you go, how right now I go, dad, why would you be so trusting? You know, why would you do that? Did you not? But, but like he always told me, he goes, I never did anything wrong. Why would I worry about delivering the money? I didn't do anything. He had no idea he was being set up. He had no idea. The podcast makes the claim for that largely based on an interview someone gave to them where they report a conversation they had with one of the attorneys, one of the one of the minor players involved, who describes Dunlap as a patsy. But there's a lot of evidence that says Dunlap was involved. There's some weird things. He handled money that went to John Adamson's defense to fly him out of Phoenix the day after the crime. He he changed the money into small bills and made sure it got to the right people. And even Karen Graham in our interview, it struck me that She believes her father was a stand-up man, very honest. She couldn't believe why he would hang out with a guy like John Harvey Adamson. And I watched him sit and having him charged with, you know, you did this, you did that. Well, no one had proof of anything, anything, except for, um, how do I say, 
situations are like he delivered the money to Adamson's attorney. No one would believe the man showed up in our driveway. Um, even though my brother-in-law was standing there watching it and talked to the man and get, and took two lie detector tests and passed, but still they call him a liar. He's because he's too he's not credible. Well, but John Adamson's credible. I mean, I don't get it. I don't ever get it. He even says in his story, he goes, I didn't want to do it, but what was I supposed to do? The guy drove off, handed me the bag and drove off. So I'm standing there with a bag full of money. What do I do? I took it down. I did just what they asked me to do. So, you know, come on. I'm like, Dad, why? You know what? It's just, it's a sad story of a trusting man is all it is. Why do you think this story is still so interesting, so mysterious to people? There is a conclusion. It's not a cold case. And yet we at large keep coming back to it. What draws people like you back into this story year after year? I think there's a gap between the severity of the crime and the official reason for it. And it's something I tried to tackle this year in looking at the story. Why would someone want to blow up a reporter because they didn't get a volunteer position on the racing commission? And I looked back at some clips to try to find that answer. And it turns out, Kemper Marley wanted to get into the racing industry. Don Bowles' reporting succeeded. He got the aim he wanted, which is to break up the monopoly that the Funk family had over the racetracks in Arizona. So they were going to be parceled out. Other people could get into the racing business. And a longtime source of Don Bowles named Fred Porter, one of the last people, if not the last person, Bowles talked to before he left the state capitol that day, Fred Porter wanted to get a license and was talking to Don Bowles about, you know, maybe I can, you could help me speak at a hearing or mention my name in the paper and that might help me get a license. Fred Porter was having conversations with Kemper Marley about being a partner in the dog tracks. Now, Kemper Marley couldn't be a racing commissioner and a dog track owner unless he did so silently. Maybe you get a seat on the racing commission and maybe no one knows that you provided the money to help Fred Porter become a dog track owner. And talking to people in the industry, there is a very good reason why they don't allow racing commissioners to control the racetracks. Because if you wish to be corrupt, if you wish to make a lot of money, you could fix the races. Actually, I realized how you fix races. You don't make sure the dogs win the race. You hamper the dogs, drug them or something to make sure the correct dogs lose the race. But you can fix the races. You can demand bribes from people to have their animals run in the race. And then if someone complains, the complaint goes to the racing commission where you are one of three seats. How much would it cost you to buy the other two approval? It's conjecture. There's no proof behind any of what I just said. But that provides more of a good theory as to why Camper Marley was so upset that there was so much money to be made by having a seat on the racing commission if he wanted to also be a silent partner in a dog track. That would have provided a little more motivation. But I think I keep coming back to it every year. I mean, I want to honor the memory of Don Bowles by doing a story on the anniversary. There's so many interesting characters. There's so many layers to the story. And thankfully, it's one that we can keep looking at because it's so rare that there hasn't been another Arizona Republic reporter killed for their work, thankfully, uh, since this one. So it allows us the, the luxury 
of continuing to go back and mine more information out of this story. Do you think more will come out, like a, a deathbed confession maybe? Do you think we're going to get a big, like you were saying, a, a blow a hole in the case and find something new? Is there more to be found? There is, and I know where it's at. <laughs> uh, deathbed confessions, I'm not sure. Most of the people involved have suddenly, you know, have, have, have sadly passed away. The attorney general's office has some records that they're holding on to that they say they'd release eventually, but there are still materials. There are still case files and interviews that were done that we still haven't seen yet. And who knows what is inside there? I doubt it would change the official narrative of the story, but it would add some interesting contours to it. And the day they open those up, I'll be digging in. Is context sort of the biggest unanswered question for you? Or is there something else about the case that you think is still like eats away at you in the back of your brain? There's still the why. I, we get closer. Kemper Marley was supposedly ready to kill the attorney general and like a public relations guy who used to work for him. So, I mean, yeah, there's more about the case that is still unknown. How the order was given, if it was Kemper Marley who gave it, why Bowles first and not the attorney general first. Yeah, there's still some unanswered questions here. It's also fascinating. You mentioned the context. Every time I get into the Bowles case, I have to mentally get myself into the mid-70s, a time when there were no cell phones, a time when Don Bowles was clanging away on a manual typewriter with a giant desk phone that rang in the background all the time, um, smoking cigarettes, you know, and like the atmosphere of that time is so differently. And I think that also adds these contours of the fascinating work that was done back then. And when we were doing the podcast, I really got to feel like I got to know Don Bowles by hearing him do the work. And I realized, boy, this job hasn't changed that much. <laughs> dealing with sources, dealing with readers, dealing with editors, the idea of this job and, and what we do day in, day out. You know, I felt very in league with Don Bowles in how he did his job, how I do my job, how we all do this work, and what makes us continue to do it day after day. Just less at-desk cigarettes, maybe. <laughs> yeah, not even vape cartridges. We're, no. we're not allowed to have no more whiskey in the desk drawer. No. Yeah, as far no. as they know. <laughs> 50s coming up in a few years. Got anything that you're sort of looking at? People still feed me information. And at my desk now are a couple suitcases that someone had from the Phoenix Gazette reporter who covered the Don Bowles trial for the Phoenix Gazette, the sister publication that I used to work for too. Um, so yes, there's always little contours to it that, that keep me going back into the Don Bowles world. All right. Well, thank you, Richard, for coming on Valley 101. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Valley 101. Curious about something? Let us know by visiting valley101.azcentral.com. Thank you to Richard Rellis for his expertise today. You can find more of his reporting on Don Bowles at azcentral.com. And you can listen to all episodes of season one of Rediscovering wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode was written and produced by me, Amanda Luberto, with editorial help from Kaylee Monahan and Kathy Tulamello. Audio oversight by Kaylee Monahan. Today's musical scoring came from Universal Production Music. You can support Valley 101 by subscribing to us on your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us now. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. You can find us across social media at AZC Podcast. Next week. I feel like I've been here for five years. There's so many things to do that all the tasks that have to get accomplished, it feels like there's no way it's only been eight months. And then part of it's like, man, like the season's already here and it's game time, so it goes fast. But I would say that for me, it's more slow. Like there's so many things to do that it just feels like there's no way that all happened or this has all been accomplished in eight months. Valley 101 is an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com production. I'm Amanda Luberto. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next week.